Amen. I want to start in the book of James, the first chapter. And this won't be unfamiliar to you. I guess before we start into this passage, though, let me try to give some framework that lets you know the issue, the need, the struggle that I'm attempting to address, okay? I don't want people full of zeal, ambition, even godly ambition, energy, and gifts to burn out. I don't want people to launch onto a race and gain some small distance and then fall by the wayside and say, I tried it and I just couldn't affect the change that I sought. I just couldn't gain the traction that I wanted. I don't want people to burn out. And I believe that for young people, I speak as a young person to young people, I believe that we have a particular struggle because we are filled with energy. What did John say? I write to you young men because you are strong. There's something inside of us. We know that God has given us energy and strength, stamina to accomplish something. And yet, even in the kingdom, we find that things do not unfold according to our timetable, according to our plans. And when that happens, we either look in or we look out. And when we look out, we stop looking in, we start pointing fingers. I'm remembering how even Jesus in Luke 19, he says, now he began to speak this parable to those who imagined that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And he said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like a man who went on a long journey, but before going gave these talents. And he described that the kingdom of God does not appear immediately, that there is a process to it, that there is an investment stage a growth stage, a waiting stage, and a harvest stage. And then an escalation stage where responsibilities increase and trust increases. But the kingdom of God does not appear immediately. His whole point in giving us that well-known parable of the talents is to warn the impatient that the kingdom doesn't appear at the snap of a finger. I remember a couple times over the past 10 years or so talking with individuals about this kind of trust and patience that it takes to be part of the kingdom of God. I remember on the same day I was confronted with two young guys who were approximately the same age and both of them had made up their minds and had in fact already left the church. 
And I remember I met both of them, one after another, in Randy's parking lot over there off of 308 and 933. And I spoke pretty much the same thing to both of them because I felt that pretty much the same problem belonged to the both of them. And I told them, I said, you have become resentful of the construction stage and are superimposing this as if it's going to be the way your life is always going to be forever. But I, I told them, I said, when a house is under construction, it may take six, it may take nine months, but once it's built, it, become, it moves from the construction stage into the useful stage, and the useful stage is about 100 years. But you're impatient because you say, I don't like this sawing on me, I don't like this cutting on me, I don't like this hammering. What is he doing changing my identity, smearing all this paint all over me? And you say, God, I can't take this forever. But the Lord never said you'd had to take this forever. He's wanting to change you. I told somebody else once, you're like an ax under the hammer of the blacksmith. And it's blow on blow on blow on blow. And you say the same thing, I can't take this forever. But you're not going to take this forever. You've just got to be patient and trust God that the construction stage has its purpose so that you can then fulfill your purpose for the next hundred years. The Lord will sharpen you. He'll polish you. He'll put another coat of paint on. He'll fix a windowsill here and there. But we don't have to say, I'm going through the stress right now. This is how it's going to be forever. There's always going to be stress. But it's not always going to be like it is right now. The construction stage is one thing and the useful stage is another. On that particular day, the next morning, I didn't know which of them was going to respond, these two individuals. And uh, the next morning, Sunday morning downtown, I didn't know who would come to the meeting. And I was half inclined. There was one who was less worldly, less arrogant, if I may say so, uh, less set in his ways. And I thought maybe he'd be the one who would show up to the meeting the next morning. But I was wrong. And of the two, Zane Dumont showed up to the meeting the next morning. He's not here, but he knows what I'm talking about. He showed up and he never, he never, he never walked away again. But another one, he walked away and he never found his way back. And I guess that's a, a simplified version of the burnout that I'm talking about. And I don't think it has to be. The more gifted you are, the more likely you're going to be tempted to burn out. The more insightful you are, the more likely you're going to fall prey to this dynamic of impatience, this dynamic of distrust that would make you burn out. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You don't have endurance unless you have testing. And let endurance have its perfect result. Brother Daniel, do you have Amplified? Oh, who has Amplified? Somebody's got Amplified here. Nobody's got Amplified. Well, one of them says, let endurance have full play. 
let it have its way. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there's a couple things that I want to talk about here related to what he has just said. We can glibly pass over it or we can ponder it and let, let God speak to us through it. Amen? He says, let patience have its perfect result. And the result of patience is your perfecting. That you may be perfect. The very things that we hate about life, the very things that require endurance, are themselves the things that are changing us and perfecting us. To, shut, to cut short patience is to shortchange our perfection. It's not survival, it's transformation. It's not coping, it's being changed. If you go out and if you, if you think about certain things you can see in, in, in nature, in the world, there are certain things that, that you can go through that don't benefit you, that don't change you, that don't help you, that don't perfect you. But then there are other things that you go through that if you don't cave in, they're going to do all the above. Think of the training of a soldier. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's humiliating. It's persistent. And yet, if he'll stick with it, he's not just going to come on the other side and say, look, I survived it. He may say that. But he's going to say, I was changed by it. I am a different man than the man who started it. I have different capacities of strength. I have different length of endurance. And this is what he means, Paul means when he says, or the writer of Hebrews, endure hardship as discipline. He's not saying that God is sending the hardship personally into your life. He's acknowledging that the devil is sending the hardship. When Paul sought the Lord about the thorn in his side, who did he say put the thorn there? He said, I, I received a messenger from Satan. Have you ever gotten a letter? Got out your letter opener? Oh, who's this from? Oh, it's, it's, a, mess it's a message from Satan. What was the devil's message in that? It was that this is going to cause you to lose your faith. This is going to throw you off your game. This is going to make you turn in. This is going to make you start whining. Watch this, saints. I'm going to send him a letter. I'm going to send him a message. And I'm going to make a fool out of the purpose of God in this man, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. But when Paul got a letter from the devil, he went and talked to the Lord about it. He didn't discuss it with the devil. 
He didn't engage in a dialogue. Dear Satan, I received your letter and I feel like there's some errors in it. He went to the Lord and he said, God, what's your message in the devil's letter? He sent me something. You see, if North Korea wants to show off, they're going to get their biggest weapon and make some big display of it. They're going to send a message through their weaponry. But if there is a power that can intercept that weaponry in midair and utterly obliterate it, then the very message that was intended to threaten becomes a message of humiliation and defeat from the tyrant to the tyrant. Amen? So when the devil sends things in our lives that are, that are thorns to upset us, to throw us off our game, there's a message that's supposed to go back, return to sender. Here's what the Lord is wanting to communicate through your attack. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm using light language to illustrate a, 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 a weighty topic. I'm not trying to make a joke of it. It's serious. And if you don't believe it, it'll become serious for you someday. You'll find yourself opening a letter and saying, Oh God, is there any way you can get glory out of this? And the Lord says, Yes. Have, nor, have Kim Jong-un fire his biggest rocket and we're going to explode it in midair. What he intended to destroy the faith of the saints, it is going to come down in defeat and the saints are going to have more grace. They're going to have sufficient grace. They're going to have more faith. They're going to have endurance and they're going to be perfected through the very thing the devil sent to torment them. Amen. Amen. We don't want to miss the message and we don't want to just read the devil's version of that message. We want to accept the fact that God didn't send the thorn, but God will use the thorn. He said, Lord, three times he went to the Lord and said, please take it out of me. Please speak to me. And we don't know if the Lord spoke to him three times and it took three times for Paul to accept it or whether he only spoke the third time and Paul heard him. But he went three times and, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. It's just enough, Paul. Hang in there. We're going to show how with the smallest weapon of our warfare that is not carnal, we can take out missiles sent from the tyrant of terror. Amen. And we're still using Paul's weapon tonight. Do you realize that? Paul thought he was going through something and he wanted God to set him free from it. But he endured and he reached a level of perfection, a perfection of trust, a perfection of patience, a perfection of grace. And tonight, we pick up the swords that he used to take missiles out of the air, and we're using them tonight. Paul's struggle is so much more powerful for the kingdom and for its morale and for its message and for its advance than if he had never had the thorn. He didn't picture, there's no way he could have imagined 2,000 years later in an unknown land in a, in a continent called North America that 525 people would be squeezed into a room receiving grace, immediate, tangible, powerful grace from the weapon that he was able to pick up and fight the devil with in that struggle. Everybody suffers. The, the pagan has cancer and the Christian has cancer. The unbeliever has thorns in his side and the Christian has thorns in his side. But the unbeliever has no God who can take that which the enemy meant for bad and turn it for good. He can't say, I'm going to endure this hardship as discipline. 
I'm going to let God use the devil's tricks to help me become a better man. He can't say that because there's no God. It's just random. It's just accidental. He doesn't see that he is a player in a cosmic conflict between a great king and a great king of terror. So he can never rally and step up to the plate and say, I can get through this because I'm fighting for the glory of the king. I'm fighting for the faith that is going to sustain millions of Christians for generations to come. His suffering is not dignified. It is not elevated. It is not significant. It is wasted. It is just his personal battle. It is not sacralized on the altar of a great temple where everybody can benefit from it. How many of us can look back on some of the moments in our lives that changed us and revealed the grace of God to us, made the Lord more real to us, and we discovered that those moments that we remember were moments where saints had thorns in their sides and sometimes thorns that took their natural life. Dan thinks of his mother. Daniel would think of his dad. Matthew would think of his mother. Brother Abraham would think of his son. We don't ask for those things. We don't rejoice in those things. We pray against those things just like Paul. We're not better than him. We beg God to get these things out of our life and we're so thankful when he does. There are times when removing the thorn brings him glory. Why is this man blind, Lord? The disciples said in John 9. Is it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? They gave him an either-or fallacy like most stupid Christians do. And he said, neither. Neither this man's sin nor his parents, but that you may see the glory of God. And he, he, he put mud on the man's eyes and told him to go wash. And, and the man became a, a witness before the Pharisees and, and testified that the Messiah was here. Show him to me, Lord, that I may believe in him. So sometimes he gets glory by taking the thorn out. But the other times he gets glory by leaving the thorn in and teaching us how to overcome it with grace, how to overcome it with patience, how to let God use the devil's weapons against the devil's purpose. And so he says, this is that you might see that the glory of God might be revealed in him. And yet the same phrase is used when he tells Peter, you're going to stretch forth your hands and be taken in a way you would not go. He said this signifying the manner of death by which Peter would. So he gets glory when he takes thorns out and he gets glory even in the death of the saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his little ones, of his, one of his saints, amen. God can get the glory if we'll let him use it his way instead of bucking and fighting and chafing against it because it's not going our way. So the result of endurance is perfecting. That God uses the enemy's... How does a soldier train except he trains by practicing against the tactics that are known favorites of the enemy. If they say, now the Taliban is using IEDs, then you know how the U.S. military is going to train their soldiers. There are going to be dummy IEDs all over the place. So how does the Lord train his soldiers? 
He lets them practice with live rounds. <laughs> he lets them interact with the weapons of the enemy so that they learn how to deal with the live rounds. Amen. Amen. So he says, endure hardship as discipline, as a good soldier. You say, this isn't the Lord's training camp. This is the devil. Yes, but the Lord is in charge. Amen. And he's letting you learn how to conquer even the devil's best weapons. Stick with it. You'll be perfected. Amen. But then he says, the lack of wisdom is what disallows endurance to have full play. He says, let endurance have full play, but if anyone lacks wisdom. Do you get the correlation that he's making there? He's saying, let endurance have full play, but if anyone lacks wisdom. So he's using patient endurance and wisdom interchangeably implying that if we can't stick with it and be patient, it is because we don't have wisdom. What is wisdom? Is it super intelligence? Is it the binary mind that can do the greatest calculations? What is wisdom? Do you think of wisdom like that? That wisdom and patient endurance are tied together and that it's the short-term person it's the fool who only lives for the moment and can't see the long-term results the bigger picture can you think of any people in the Bible who lacked wisdom and didn't let endurance have its perfect result how about the first believer in the Bible Abraham the first child of Exodus, of faith. Did he let endurance have its perfect work or were there some times where he got duped and got really foolish? Amen. When the waiting gets long, when it seems God is silent, when nothing's going as we want, that's a moment where something is being perfected in us. Our prayers deepen. Our feelings become more sensitive. Our eyes are more open. We walk more circumspectly. Oh God, I need to hear something. But Abraham cut it short, didn't he? He listened to the foolish advice of his wife and he, he created a real problem, didn't he? God helped him get past it, but it was a real problem. The same with Esau, you remember? Esau had a real need he was really hungry. We have real needs in the flesh, real appetites. Your father knows that you need these things. But Esau didn't understand that the difference between a need and an idol is the priority that you place on it. So he comes into proximity to that smelly good stuff, that red stuff. They knew how to cook lentils then. And, and his need... Ooh, he, he can't be patient. He can't stick with it. And so he is impatient. He cuts short the purpose of God. And we can see the lack of wisdom. We know the story from the end. And so you read stories like that and you're wanting to say, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And that's how God feels when he sees our pride getting all flustered and us making rash decisions. He's going, no, 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 no. I, you'll get past this. 
You'll be stronger than this someday. You'll be perfected. You won't feel this weak someday. If you'll just hang in there and trust me, stick with the program, let wisdom have its way. How many realize that I'm connecting, or rather that I'm showing that James is connecting endurance and wisdom? Let endurance have its full play, but if anyone lacks wisdom. How available is this wisdom? Now see, if wisdom is an accumulation of knowledge, you, just, you can't get an automatic download. <laughs> 50 gigabytes per second. <laughs> Boy, I'm lacking wisdom. I need to know, you know, the, the metabolic nature of that tree or, I mean, it doesn't, I, I need to know the, the, the chemical compounds and the bleach that I'm using. I, I need to know, uh, I need to know how, whether it's going to rain tomorrow, whether it's going to, I, and so just download, Lord, please give me wisdom. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it to him without reproach. This is a categorical statement, wouldn't you agree? And do you believe that that's what he's suggesting? That if we'll just go push the button, God, I need more wisdom. I don't know how to do my algebra problems. Mom, I got it. Give me the test now. I lacked it, but I have it now because I prayed and God gave me wisdom. We have to understand that that is not what he's describing as wisdom. That is not it. Wisdom is the mind of Christ. Wisdom is simply doing things God's way. And so he ties patience, trust, prayer, and faith to wisdom. You want to get wisdom? Have patience, trust, prayer, and faith, and you'll get wisdom. That's the message here. I've puzzled over this scripture. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. What does that mean? But I started seeing that the wisdom that he's offering is not a download of facts. The wisdom that he's offering is the trust to do things his way. And even the awareness of what his way is, as we spoke of some weeks ago from Ephesians. How available is wisdom? How available is God's wisdom for every single person in this room? Readily available, guaranteed delivery. And what is the only thing you need to get that wisdom? You need to pray, which is ask. And then are you going to get it for sure? You need to pray without any doubting, without any double-mindedness. And you got to get impatience out of your heart. Impatience is incompatible with wisdom. Impatience is what the disciples were always itching with. Is it at this time you'll restore the kingdom of Israel? Breathe. Can I sit on your left? Can he sit on your right? Calm down. Impatience. They didn't see the full picture. They didn't see what God was doing. They were trying to rescue Jesus from the plan of God. They were trying to assure Jesus that he wouldn't have to undergo the greatest miracle in human history. That's how the flesh's thinking plays havoc with the wisdom of God. Peter was full of the stupid kind of wisdom. 
the wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish, because it is from below. It does not come from the mind of God. It is a deduction. It is reasoning. It is learned intelligence. But it is not a revelation. It is not aletheia. It is not an epiphany. It is not a light shining and showing. Where are all the riches, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden? All of those that count for anything. In Christ. So when you pray, you're trying to get out of one state of, of mind, one atmosphere, one building or edifice of impossibility, and you're trying to make a spatial, mental, emotional shift into the place where you walk through the door and you go, it's all here. <laughs> the wisdom and knowledge, the treasures are all in the room. They're everywhere. I can just go and ask of God and he's going to give it to me. When you pray, you're not saying, God, please send me an individual download as I sojourn in the path of my own will in the world of my own choosing. You're saying, God, get me out of my own space and get me into Christ because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I need to get out of my place. Just like he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Wisdom, the call to wisdom is an invitation out of your space where nothing makes sense, out of your kingdom where God's will doesn't come to pass, out of your culture where the plants never sprout and the fruit never comes and into a different space, a place called the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. So you got to get in Christ and you're going to start seeing treasures that otherwise would have remained hidden. The beginning of wisdom is to know you don't have it. Proverbs says, acquire wisdom, Proverbs 4, 5, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. And this is what he says. Now listen to this. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. The beginning of wisdom is what? To start getting it. <laughs> <laughs> to get into the motion of searching for it, of praying for it, of reaching for it, of asking without a double mind and believing God's going to give it to you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. You become wise the moment you know, I got to get this. Something starts changing in your mind. Something starts opening in your understanding. Hallelujah. Doubting, doubting precludes wisdom. You can't get wisdom while you're doubting that God is going to speak to you. You can't be saying, oh God, would you show me your will? And in your heart saying, I don't believe he's going to do this, but I've got to try. Something's got to happen. Faith has got to rise up in your heart. that says, God, I know you have plans for my life. The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. God, I just need you to speak to me. And you stand up. I know that you're going to speak to me. Remember what it says about Daniel? The angel comes to Daniel after three weeks of prayer and he says, from the day that you set your heart 
to hear from God. I was coming, but I had to come fight through the prince of Persia. The man who gets wisdom doesn't say, oh God, I'm praying again for wisdom, please. I don't, it didn't happen yesterday, but I'm just believing. Amen, even though I'm not. The man who gets wisdom really believes that God is invested in your welfare, that God has a plan for your life, that God gave his only begotten son so that you could be part of a kingdom and you could help advance that kingdom. He has a will for your life. It's not in his interest to hide his purpose from you. He wants you to know his will for your life. The blockage is not on God's part. The blockage is on our part. God wants you to know his will. Look at how many times in the scripture it tells us, do not be drunk, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice that you may know what the will of God is. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. God's mind, his plan for your life, he wants you to know it. So if you're not getting it, it's not his fault. Cheers. And something can change in your attitude. If you go praying for wisdom and doubting that God's going to speak to you, is God going to speak to you? No. He may be speaking, but you'll never hear it. The heavens may be declaring the glory of God, but you're not going to hear anything. It may be thundering over the Jordan while Jesus is being baptized. God may be speaking, this is my only, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, but you're just going to hear a rumble. You've got to change your mind. You've got to change your heart. You've got to say, God, I know you're going to speak to me. It may not be what I want to hear, God, but I know you'll speak to me. You've got to come in faith without any doubting. Everything that he says here about the double-minded man, it's not about life in general. It's about acquiring wisdom. It may apply to life in general, but he's talking about the guarantee that God will give you wisdom. And he says, it's your double-mindedness that is the problem. Now, when we go to ask for wisdom, when we go to ask God for direction, does this mean that there is no flesh, that we have no flesh to battle? I promise you before the Lord that before I stood up here, I was battling that flesh. You say, well, why did you stand up? You were double-minded. No, I wasn't. I was fighting that flesh. I never adopted its mind. I was rebuking that flesh and praying against that flesh and saying, oh God, your will be done. Amen. But if I had sat there and stalled and then tried and then stalled, you can't do that. You got to know God's will and stick with it. If you say this is God, then it's not God. And it is God. And it is that's not it. Wisdom is predicated on a resolute faith that God, you're going to speak to me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Lord, I know that you have a plan and you're going to reveal it to me. Double-mindedness creates instability and makes the boat here and there. And what is that double-mindedness? You're getting input from more than one source. You don't have a singleness of heart. You're not pure in heart, so you can't see God or His will. Amen? That's what double-mindedness is. You're getting input from more than one source. Your flesh is saying, why don't you do it like this? 
And the Spirit is saying, what about this? And your fears are saying, oh, you better not do that. And so you're triple-minded, quadruple-minded. Thank you, Jesus. You're schizophrenic. You're bipolar, spiritually speaking. But if you could just simplify it down and say, God, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple with the expectation that he's going to speak to me. When you have an insight, I'm going to pivot here just a smidge, so stick with me. When you have an insight, let's say you're a business manager and you perceive that something could be done better in the place of your service. But maybe there's someone over you who doesn't yet see what you see. Does that mean they're rejected of God? No, it doesn't. It means they're human, but not rejected of God. It is inevitable that when God speaks to his people, he does not simultaneously speak to every ear at the same time, at the same volume, the same content. Okay? He speaks to Peter about Cornelius and what percentage of the 12 initially thought he had done the right thing? Zip. Nada. But they had a single-minded heart so that when they heard the anointing coming through Peter, they were able to quiet down and glorify God. The same is seen in Acts 15 over circumcision. Amen? Let's say you're a young minister. Let's say you're just a young gifted guy. Let's say you're a mover and a shaker. You're going to be tempted to resent God's call that you seek wisdom. You're going to, tempt, you're going to be tempted to think of wisdom as a waste of time. You're going to want to even label wisdom as politics. But wisdom is the way of doing things where only God gets the credit. You're going to fail in every other mechanism of intelligence, gifting, energizing, or otherwise. Wisdom is God's way of doing it where no flesh can glory. Now, I have seen people who have an insight they see that something is wrong, and they're accurate. And they think that their accuracy is their prerogative to act. And so they go bursting into the order of a relationship, throwing around their accuracy as if everyone should bow down and genuflect because they're accurate on a couple points. But it is not your accuracy that is your prerogative. It is your wisdom. It is your anointing. It is the assurance that it is not you, but rather God is loving, shepherding, helping, serving, speaking, guiding through you. That you have become invisible and that it is only him. And you say, you say well, I know this is wrong. I know that this shouldn't be happening. And so I'm just going to go talk to so-and-so. And you go barging in and, and you talk to so-and-so. And poor brother so-and-so says, they're taken back. And they can't even process the content of your concern 
because the manner, attitude, and spirit of your delivery is so obnoxious to the order of God. <laughs> They're like this. And you're baffled. And you, you start to, to get in a conflict. You say, did I hear from God or did I not? Did I see what I saw or did I not? And then you're going to say, you know what? He, he just doesn't hear God. He's just on a power trip. He's just this and he's just that. No, no. He has just been conditioned to ignore and block out all double-minded voices, every voice, except the voice of the shepherd that he has always followed. And if you could come in that spirit, he might hear you. Who has an NIV here? James 3.13. Stand up and read it, please. Listen to that. Have you ever thought of it that way? The humility of wisdom? Thank you. The humility of wisdom? He says the wisdom that is from below is earthly, sensual, and demonic. The wisdom that is from above is first peaceable, willing to yield. Why is the wisdom from above willing to yield? Is it because truth is compromising? No, it's because it's not your possession. You just want to do God's will. So if you're coming with the wisdom that is from above, it's not that you're willing to compromise. You're willing to do whatever is God's will. If that's new to you, if that's different from you, if that's an understanding you never had, okay, great, let's do it. You're not invested. This isn't your thing. You're just a vessel. But would you use those, that translation, would you say that he came in the gentleness of wisdom? Why does gentleness typify wisdom? Why does humility typify wisdom? Because you can come in gentleness because it's not your fight. If this is your possession, if you're coming with your opinion, then you gotta have your dukes up, you gotta be ready. Now, if he says this, I'm going to say that, and I've got to have my ducks in a row, and I've got to have my arguments. You're not going to have that peace that says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches the city. If God isn't anointing what I'm saying, I don't really want to be saying it. This isn't my will. This isn't what I want. I can present it because I love you. I love the body. Amen. And I'm just going to put it out there. I'm willing to yield. I'm not afraid of being shown that I'm wrong because my ego isn't wrapped all up like a pretzel in this matter. I just want to do God's will. What does it say? Wisdom builds the house in Proverbs 24. Wisdom builds the house. And what did Paul call himself? I am a wise master builder. Amen. You can't be a builder. You're a demolisher. You're an expert in demolition when you have insights, but you don't have wisdom. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. 
you are you're an expert in demolition. You see that there's a problem and you go climbing up into your big excavator and throwing your big iron boom around with the sensitivity of a Cape Buffalo. Boom, boom. This is what Jesus was talking about when he described the people who, who see specks in other people's eyes and have beams protruding out of their own heads. Unicorns of excellence. Let me help you. And the whole church is being cleared from the room, amen. But I'm right, there's a speck there, I know I saw it. At least from this eye, the beam was blocking that one, but I saw a speck, I'm telling you I did. Yeah, well we see something too, <laughs> amen. And we resent it. We wanna come with our block-headed simplicity and just say, take me or leave me, this is who I am. I'm just gonna speak the word of God as it is. No, you're not. You don't have the gentleness of wisdom. I have sat with brothers who are white-haired, men of God whose character and gifts and fruitfulness I would aspire to. And I have seen them minister to others where they could have thrown their weight around. They could have belittled them, but they came in the gentleness of wisdom. When you know you're right, you're not in a panic to prove it. When you know you've heard from God, it's his house. If he wants to build it, let him do it his way. You're not in this antsy panic to get your point across. All of that, all that reveals is that this is still an ego trip for you. Anyone can climb up on the excavator. But Solomon says, he says, the words of the wise are like apples of gold. A word of wisdom spoken in season is like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. It fits. It's right. It, has, it finds its place. It does not return void. Wisdom requires humility. Wisdom requires faith. Wisdom requires patience. In short, it requires that you leave everything outside that is of your flesh. That you perceive your aperture of opportunity into the kingdom. Your advance into your gift as the eye of the needle. The camel is going to make it through the eye. But all the baggage is going to stay outside. You're going to lose all that. I have seen people ultimately lose out with God. I'm thinking of somebody in particular, a friend of mine, lose out with God because they could not come under this burden of wisdom, this humility, this gentleness of wisdom. They thought that their rightness was a sufficient prerogative to throw their weight around. But he, told, he taught Jesus not only what to say, but how to say it, and when to say it, and to whom he should say it. He spoke one way with a group of 12, and another way with 72, and yet another with the Pharisees. I have much to say to you, but you're not able to bear it, but I'm going to go ahead and dump it on you anyway. No, he didn't say that. 
Wisdom is not in a panic because it does not believe that it is the builder. It believes that God is the builder and it's just the Lord's workman. Thank you, Jesus. Wisdom builds the house. It says in Luke 2, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God and with man. That means he was growing up. It mentions how tall he was getting. But the thing that mattered was what came first, wisdom. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. You may bring the word of wisdom and it may be rejected. But a lot of times, if you would just wait on the Lord and receive his wisdom, you could, you could maintain peaceableness. You could maintain favor. It's not about being politic. It's not about being manipulative. It's about being humble. It's about being single-minded. You see, when you bring something on your own strength, when you bring something from your own mind and your own certainty, you're going to invite conflicts with other people who live by their own strength, with other people who bring their own mind and certainty. And you're going to be contending all the time. You're going to be striving all the time. What does it say about the servant of the Lord? The servant of the Lord must not strive, but in meekness, there it is again, the gentleness of wisdom, in meekness instruct those who fight themselves. You know, you could redirect your energy toward a more worthy cause than just fighting yourself, but that's what we want. We want a wisdom where people know it's not us coming, it's God. You see something that needs to change. You see something that needs to happen. Don't become impatient. Seek God. Pray, pray, pray. I, I dwelt on this for seven weeks. You say, well, you could have dwelt on it longer. No, but seriously, I have to be able to come in faith. I have to be able to minister in proportion to my faith. But I, I didn't, I, I, it's been in my Bible. But every week I've added to it. And this last week, he gave me the key. But I, God, I'm, I'm tarrying, I'm praying because I don't want to bring something that is a good idea. I want to bring something that opens your eyes and changes your life. I don't want to bring myself. I want to bring the Lord. And so I came one week after another and I was willing to yield. Amen. I'm waiting on the Lord. You want a gift in ministry? Then see the problem and pray and seek God and study and talk to people and ponder it, meditate on it, and tarry until you start to hear something coming that is not from the flesh, but that is a revelation from God. And when you have that, then faith is going to rise in your heart. You're going to say, I'm going to be able to bring this, Lord, because it's not from me. It's from you. And you'll bring it, and people will feel it. They're going to feel like God loved us. God spoke to us. God blessed us tonight. Not this person. That's what we need. We need to build the house. We need to build the kingdom. Amen. We need people of wisdom. But it's not people of super intelligence. It's people of prayer. It's people of single-minded faith. It's people of humility. Praise you, Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, when, when you're brought before the big shots of the world, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Determine in your minds ahead of time, I'm not going to go there. For it will not be you speaking. 
but your father speaking through you. And he will give you a wisdom that cannot be gainsaid or resisted, that cannot be, that cannot be in, uh, countered or resisted. That's what we want. We don't want to be fretting about our, we just want, God, please. Wisdom is a supernatural phenomenon. It is not superintelligence, it's supernatural. Above all else, let's get wisdom. God, in all you're getting, get understanding, Lord. Amen. I feel the fear of God. You know, Brother Dan and I talk about it. We, we go over and, and the Lord will start a work in this place or another. And, and I hear about, I love to see the body circling around these and helping them. But I know what Paul meant when he said, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Because you know how much dying it took. You know how unsure of yourself you were. You know that you were with them in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And your teaching and your preaching was not with persuasive words of human garbage wisdom, but the other kind, which is the demonstration of the spirit and power. And you see someone going and you say, God, are they just going to shoot from the hip? Are they just going to glibly assume that everybody understands what they're saying when nobody understands what they're saying? God, please give them wisdom. There's a temptation in us to think that wisdom is taking control, getting people to do things our way because we're so smart. Wisdom is a discovery. It's an unfolding surprise. We don't know God's ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. Amen. Wisdom is a surprise. Wisdom is going into a meeting thinking it's going to be one thing and finding out it's something completely different. Wisdom is dependency. Wisdom is humility. Thank you, Jesus. And if we could just get rid of everything but, wow, we would be mighty for God. We don't want to live in fear. We don't want to shackle the gift. The gospel is not chained. We don't want to, to sit on people's gifts. But we want the wisdom of God. We don't want this dumb self-confidence that says, I can just say it like it is. When did Jesus ever say things like it was? How many times did, did his words not chafe against their flesh when they said, speak plainly to us? Well, if he had come in their box, they would have rejected him. But he came trying to bring them a better understanding, which if they had received, and when they did receive, gave them grace to make the change. Everything's so complicated. It doesn't have to be that complicated. No, it's not complicated. It's dependent. It's mysterious. It's the wisdom of God. Thank you, Jesus. You want to be trusted by the ministry? Prove to be a man of wisdom. You want to change people's lives? Prove to be a man of wisdom. You want to bring people truth that sets them free? Come in the meekness and the gentleness of wisdom. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. As the Lord has been speaking to us tonight, I thought of a passage, uh, and I, you, can, you can read the whole passage sometime. You know, it's the whole section in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the wisdom of God and contrasting it to the wisdom of men. But I guess I... I, I let me just read you part of it here. He says, 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is what I feel like we've heard tonight. The kind of wisdom that, that crucifies the flesh and leaves no room for self, but gives all for the sake of those that we're called to reach. We preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. And I thought, well, what is the power of God? Is it not embedded in his nature, which is love? The power of God, the love of God, and the wisdom of God are all the same thing. Amen. If it's not being done in love, it's not the wisdom of God. It is inextricable from his heart. Whatever we call wisdom, it's going to have to reflect this self-sacrificial love of God for those to whom we speak or those to whom we reach. Amen. And I, I thought of, again, of what Brother Grady shared here in the beginning about the plants, you know, who, when things are going great, they're, they're in a, comp a competitive mode. But when stress comes, they go into cooperative mode, if I understood you right. Is that what the burden of God does to us? Does it put us in competitive mode? Well, it shouldn't. It's not really God's burden if it puts us in that mode. If it's God's burden, we're going to go into cooperation mode. We are all in this together. And whatever God may have shown me or given me, it is for the building up of the body. It is for the edifying of all. It's not so my place can be advanced or something. It's so that we together can become what God wants us to be. So it's never looking at its brother and saying, well, if I was king instead of him, I'd have a better way of handling this situation. It's never doing that. It's saying, oh, God, I'm, I'm pulling for him. How can we together accomplish God's purpose, not for his glory or mine or anyone, but, but for God's glory? Thank you, Jesus. And he goes on down here and he says, he talks about how God is, has uh, chosen the foolish things of the world Look, look at us, he basically says. You know, who among us are wise in the world's eyes? Not, not many. You know, but he says God has chosen these very things because it is through our weakness that he becomes strong. That was Paul's lesson we talked about earlier. But then he comes down and he says that he's chosen these things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then he says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Of him you are, you belong to God if you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God Amen. and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And it struck me, he became the wisdom of God. 
And, and as he is in this world, so are we to be. Amen. We're, as he laid down his life, as he went to the cross, so are we to be. We also are supposed to become the wisdom of God. That means the mode of our behavior of every word becomes preaching the crucifixion. It becomes self-sacrifice, and that's how we reach people. And you think about all the wisdom that we know Jesus spoke in wisdom for, for those three years of his ministry, all the wisdom that he spoke. And yet what Paul is saying, the ultimate wisdom of God here is, is Christ crucified. Amen. That's where the wisdom of God came to its point in salvation, in redemption, was in the cross. Amen. It was the lived out wisdom through Christ who became the wisdom of God for us. And this is what we're called to become. And when people are not listening, people aren't getting the message, well, get a little lower. Get a little farther onto the cross. See, even the Roman centurion, when Christ was on the cross, said, surely this was the Son of God. There is something about getting hanging naked on that cross and saying, God, this isn't about me. I'm going to do whatever it takes because the love of Christ compels me. And I'm going to just do whatever it takes to get across God's word in God's way here. Amen. And once we're on that cross, even the doubters start to listen. Thank you, Jesus. I feel God empowering us tonight to build the Lord's house to give us the wisdom to do it His way. And His way is always going to be getting a little lower, finding a little more love, saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to robe myself in the flesh of my brother here. We are together. We are inextricable from each other. So this is not a competition. <laughs> this is about us saying, God, it's not your will to lose any of those that you have given me. I was on the phone with some brothers from Israel today, and we were talking about a burden there. And one of the brothers said, you know, it comes to me that we are to be not our brother's killer, but our brother's keeper. <laughs> Amen. And that in our quest to help our brother, we're, it's not them that we're against. We're trying to keep the brotherhood. We're trying to keep our relationships. We're trying to preserve the love of God so that the kingdom can be built. Let our helping not be destructive, as we've heard tonight. Let our helping build up the kingdom so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Let he who glories, glory in the Lord. Amen.